You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, good evening, everybody. It is a real pleasure for me to be here, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. And just to be here at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, man, this this church has such a wonderful reputation all over the world, and it's kind of a thrill for me to stand behind this pulpit, you know? I mean... Really, I mean, a lot of good has been done in this world just from the ministry of Pastor Joe and this pulpit and this church. And uh, I can just tell you that we're grateful for it all over the world. I'd like you to turn your Bibles tonight to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And what I want to talk to you about is about God's work in Europe. Because in Acts, chapter 16, it talks about God's work in Europe. Now, my own familiarity with God's work in Europe was increased a lot about seven years ago when I and my family, we left the church that I was a pastor of in Southern California, and we moved our family, myself, my wife, our three children, out to a place called Siegen, Germany. Siegen is sort of a smaller city in Germany. Uh, maybe about an hour and a half northwest of Frankfurt. And we went there to start a Bible college. And for the last seven years, we've given ourselves to that ministry, and I think God has really blessed it. It's been a wonderful seven years. And it's actually a time of transition for us right now because we really believe that God is leading us to leave the work in Zegan behind and to the hands of other people. That Bible college in Zegan is going to continue just as strong and probably stronger than ever before. But God's calling us back to work with the church in Santa Barbara, Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara. But uh, my years in the last seven years have been spent mostly in Europe. And when Americans think of Europe and Christianity, they usually think of the amazing history that's found there. They think of the fact that for more than 1,500 years, Europe was the center of the Christian world. Whatever dynamic spiritual life and missionary effort there was in the world, it was coming out from Europe. We think of Augustine and Anselm and the Irish monks and Waldo and Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin and the Anabaptists and Whitfield and Wesley and William Carey and Charles Spurgeon and all the rest of those guys. That's what a lot of Americans think of when they think about Europe They think of the glorious spiritual heritage there. Well, I can tell you that those days are gone. It's true. The the centers of spiritual life and missionary zeal are no longer in Europe, and they haven't been there for about 100 years. And so we got to think about this. And I I tell you, my observations for the last many years in in, in Europe have led me to to, to see it this way. I I think that it's a mixture of bad news and good news. I think that the bad news is that things are very bad spiritually in Europe. It is as, uh, I think it was Phil Metzger at our very first session, he said that a lot of people call Europe in a post-Christian era. 
And you look around at the culture, you look around the society, and you see why they say it. I don't know if you read the newspapers or listen on the news, but right now there's a monetary crisis in Europe. The euro is in a lot of question. It's been falling in value, and some people think that it might take a free fall because of this economic crisis with Greece and the eurozone and Germany helping out and political and economic pressures and all the rest. Listen, I'm here to tell you that far and away, the greatest crisis in Europe is a spiritual crisis. It's a spiritual crisis because Europe is a continent that has lost confidence in itself. They don't believe in anything. They they live hollow, aimless lives. Now, I'm not talking about each and every individual that lives in Europe, but I'm talking about the culture as a whole. It's not going anywhere. They don't believe in anything. I'll tell you something that Pope Benedict XVI said, and I think on this point he was dead right. He said, you could almost think that the European continent is in fact losing faith in its own future. That's really how I see it. That's the bad news. I'll tell you the good news. The good news is that God is moving in Europe. And I think Phil Metzger was dead on right when he said, instead of seeing it as a post-Christian culture, we should see it as a pre-Christian culture. And we should be very encouraged by some very bright, shining lights that there are in the midst of that darkness. The church that Pastor Phil pastors in in, uh, Budapest, that is a shining light in the midst of the darkness. The church that our Bible college has been associated with, the, the, the church that Pastor Nick Long is connected to there, the Calvary Chapel of Zegan, that's a shining bright light. If you pick up the Calvary Chapel magazine, you'll see Three southern Germany churches profiled of Freiburg, Heidelberg, and Stuttgart. Man, those are shining lights in the midst of the darkness. And there's a lot more of them out there, too. So there's real reasons for optimism. But there's bad news. The the bad news is that European culture, it's somewhat decadent. I mean, it's reflected in their work hours, in their vacation hours, their attitudes towards public nudity, towards drunkenness, towards sex outside of marriage, towards a general dependence upon the government of support. Make no mistake about it, European society is somewhat decadent. Now, I say somewhat very deliberately because it can be exaggerated. I'm not here to stand before you or anybody and say, America is righteous and Europe is sinful. Listen, America has its share of sinfulness and Europeans can be righteous at times, that's for sure. But without hesitation, I would say that Europe is further along a path of moral, spiritual, social and cultural decline than America is. I'll put it to you this way. Do do you know the trends in our society right here in America that concern you? The social trends, the, the cultural trends, the moral trends. You take all those trends and advance them 10 or 15 years, and that's where Europe is today. They're just further along the same road. But I tell you, there's good news in that. And the good news is this, is that the emptiness of European decadence, it gives a great opportunity. Listen, do you know what most Europeans live for? They live for vacation. I mean it literally. They get five or six weeks of paid vacation a year. Everybody does. 
And they seriously save and spend on vacation. In many ways, that's what they live their life for. But by some accounts, 80 million Germans, that's the population of Germany, 80 million Germans spend more on vacation travel than 300 million Americans do. That's how seriously they take it. Listen, all of that effort to fill the emptiness of life falls short. It has to fall short. God put a a void, an empty space within every human heart. And let me tell you, it can't be filled with vacation. It can only be filled with Jesus Christ himself. Now, the good news is that that decadence is a great opportunity. The, The bad news, listen, there's an immigration problem in Europe. There's a lot of unassimilated immigrants. But the good news is that those immigrants are a huge and ripe mission field. They can be reached a lot easier in Europe than they can be reached in their native countries. Do you think it's difficult to reach somebody from an Arab country for Christ? You move them to Europe and it's a lot easier to reach them. And so there's a real opportunity there. Now listen, the the bad news too in the bigger picture is that the demographic trends for Europe are genuinely frightening. Now, did you remember what I said early on about how Pope Benedict XVI, how he said that Europe is a continent that has lost faith in its future? If you want to see that reflected anywhere, look for how it's reflected in the birth rates. Basically speaking, European women don't have babies. They don't. They don't have the confidence or the willingness to invest in the future enough to have children. Of the 25 nations in the world with the lowest birth rates, 22 of them are European nations. And despite immigration, I mean, forgetting about immigration, even accounting for immigration, by the year 2030, the population of Europe will be 41 million people less than it is today. By 2050, it'll be a hundred million people less than it is today. And the big impact is going to be felt around the year 2020 when the baby boomers start dying off in big numbers. That's when you're going to see a radical population decline in Europe. That's bad news. But you want to know what the good news is? That means that there's a greater urgency than ever that God is either going to send revival to Europe or Jesus is going to come soon. Because something radical is going to happen in Europe in the next generation if Jesus doesn't return first. Listen, we need to realize this and that it's a critical time in European history right now. So what do we do about it? Well, I want to take your mind back to Acts chapter 16. I want to take your mind back there To recall you to a time, if you can believe this, when there were no Christians in Europe. None. Talk about a pre-Christian age. I mean, no Christians in Europe and not a single church in Europe. It was like that once, do you remember? There was a time when there was no Christianity in Europe. And you know what? God was able to do something pretty good then. God did something very dramatic in those first few centuries of the early church. And Europe became what we like to remember it as. It became the continent of Wycliffe and of Wesley, of Spurgeon and of Simmons, of Luther and the Lollards. 
of Calvin and William Carey, of Whitfield and the Waldenses, of Taylor and Tyndale, of Zwingli and Zinzendorf. And you ask yourself, can it ever come back to the place where Europe was that place where it sent out missionaries? It was the center of faithfulness to the gospel. Could could it ever come back to a place where Jesus is really worshipped? Where where his word is preached and where the Bible is honored and taught? Listen, if it's going to happen, it would take a mighty work of God. But you know what? He did a mighty work of God in Europe before, didn't he? And he started it all right here in Acts chapter 16. So check it out. Starting now at verse 11, you're going to see the first convert in Europe. Ready? Verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. Now, right there, Paul and his missionary team, they just crossed over to the European continent. Okay, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying... If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now, let me just kind of go over these five verses, and then, and then I want to just start drawing out some points of what we can learn from this first convert here in Europe. First of all, Paul and his missionary team, we see in verse 11, now including Luke, if you notice there in verse 11, he starts using the word we, so Luke is part of that missionary team. They had to sail across the Aegean Sea from the continent of Asia over to the continent of Europe. Today we would see of going from the uh, eastern half of the, the nation of Turkey over to the western part of it. But they're still doing that, coming over to the continent of Europe. And this was a big step for Paul, probably bigger than he ever knew. And so there they come over to what is today modern-day Greece, to the city of Philippi, which verse 12 tells us, which was the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. By the way, isn't it interesting that Paul's general strategy was to plant churches in major cities? Because he knew that it was easier for the gospel to spread from major cities to the outlying areas than it was for the gospel to spread from the outlying areas to the major cities. And so he came to Philippi, a a city that had had a long history. And it was right on a famous road that went east to west across the part of northern Greece. It was known as the Epian Way. This was an awesome road that the Romans built. Check it out. It was about 20 feet wide and 700 miles long. A paved road made in the ancient world going all across northern Greece. Well, that road ran right through the middle of Philippi. And from Philippi, you could spread the gospel all over the place. So Paul says, that's where we're going. We're going to Philippi. And when they got there, what did Paul normally like to do when he came to a city in his missionary endeavors? He liked to go to the synagogue, right? The problem was in Philippi, there was no synagogue service. Paul called up or he looked it up on his iPhone or whatever it was. 
No synagogue service in Philippi this day. Instead, what are they doing? Verse 13 tells us, On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. You see, the problem in Philippi was that it was such a Roman city. So many Romans had settled there. Mostly veterans and soldiers from the army had settled there that it was an official Roman colony. The people of Philippi had Roman citizenship as their birthright. It was such a Roman city that they had such a low population of Jews that they didn't have enough Jewish men to start a synagogue. Now, how many Jewish men did you need to have a synagogue? 50, 60, 100? No, 10. With 10 Jewish men, you could start a synagogue. There were not even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. So what did they do? They gathered down by the river just for a time of prayer and maybe reading the scriptures, but without an official synagogue service. And so there they were in the midst of this, having their time of maybe they'd sing, maybe they'd worship, maybe they'd read the scriptures, maybe they'd pray together. And then at verse 14, they met a woman named Lydia, who, as it says, was a seller of purple. Now, anybody who was a seller of purple, they dealt in a valued luxury product. The dyes that were used for making purple cloth were very expensive and very highly regarded. So, if you were a seller of purple, you were probably a person who had some financial means yourself. You're probably well off. This was the rich lady, in all likelihood. Now, maybe it's possible that the guy who sells yachts for a living is poor himself, but it's not likely, right? If you deal in an expensive item for sales, you're probably doing okay financially yourself. So Lydia was probably a wealthy woman. And by the way, it says there that she was from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was a city well known for this purple dye and fabric that came from it. So what happened? Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And her eyes were opened. God did a work of conversion in her heart. And what happened? She came to believe so much so, verse 15, that she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So immediately, Lydia set about doing good works, telling Paul and his group, please, you got to come to my house. You got to eat my food. You got to spend the night in my house. You're going to enjoy my hospitality or else. Which, by the way, if you've ever been on the mission field, sometimes you have to have hospitality like that, right? People just sort of assault you with food and with lodging and kindness and all the rest. You say, please, please stop. I can't take anymore. But they just shower it upon you because of the goodness of their heart. That's was the way this woman Lydia was. Now, I want to now just have some observations on what it was like for this woman Lydia the first European Christian. Now, I call her the first European Christian, but that's really not such a great title for Lydia because there were almost certainly European Christians before her. For example, the crowd on the day of Pentecost included, according to verse 10 of Acts chapter 2, it included visitors from Rome. And it's a pretty good bet that some of them were among the 3,000 plus that were converted that day. And no doubt that there were some merchants and sailors and travelers from Europe who heard the gospel in the east and went back to Europe and loved the Lord and served him on that part. But nevertheless, Lydia was still special. 
Lydia was the first European, sa- European woman saved on European soil. And she would become the core of the first church in Europe. So what do we learn about her? Well, the first thing I want to call to your mind about Lydia is that she was an unlikely convert. Does anybody remember how Paul ever came to go to Philippi? I'll talk about it a little bit more later. But Philippi was not his first choice. Paul wanted to go other places, but God spoke to him in a dream, right? And what did the dream have in it? The, the, the dream had a Macedonian man say what? Come on over and help us. And Paul said, this is from the Lord. Let's get in the boats, guys. We're sailing over to Macedonia because a Macedonian man had said, come and help us. And who do they run into at the riverside? They run into a Macedonian woman. I bet Paul looked at her and said, you do not look like the guy in my dream. (laughs) Now, I wonder, and this is just pure speculation. Later on, Paul has a little face-to-face with a Philippian jailer. I wonder if that guy looked like the guy in his dream. But, you know, they weren't looking to start something among women. Paul wasn't going to start a women's ministry over there in in Europe. They they went there to start a church. They went there to get a synagogue. They went there to minister to the men. Lydia was an unlikely convert because she wasn't from the target group that Paul would normally work with. An unlikely person. By the way, she was an out-of-towner herself. Was she a native of Philippi? No. Verse 14 tells us what? Verse 14 tells us that she came from Thyatira. She was from another place as well. And by the way, as well, she was wealthy or at least well off in all likelihood because she was a seller of purple. Now, this meant that this was not the kind of person that Paul normally targeted in his evangelism. But can I tell you something? When you're out there trying to plant a church or serve the Lord or reach a community, sometimes you don't get to minister to your target community. Sometimes you get the people that the Lord sends you. I know what it's like when you go out and start a church. You have this certain mentality, right? You say, oh, I just know what our little new church is going to be like. Man, I know it all the way. Here's what's going to happen. Our target group is going to be the really cool people in town. And we're going to get a bunch of people who are really young and cool and just have magnetic, charismatic personalities. And everybody's going to want to be around them. They're going to be like musicians and rock stars and Internet geniuses. They're going to be all those people, maybe like a boxer or a mixed martial art fighter thrown in there. This is going to be the coolest people of all. You know, maybe somebody, a woman who does a little bit of modeling on the side. All these really, really great, just uber cool people are going to be coming to our church. That's my target group. And then you just wait and see who God sends you. You look at the motley crew who's going to be coming to your church when you start it, right? You're going to be looking around and going, oh Lord, these aren't the people I had in mind to be serving when I started this church. You're going to feel like God sent you the misfits. You you wanted a bunch of low maintenance people. God's going to send you a bunch of high maintenance people. And you know what? Even though God sends you an unlikely group of people, you need to be grateful for them and you need to serve them and love them and fill them full of the word and remember what an unlikely person you are to be serving him. I've seen guys really get thrown off by this. They feel 
God has called me to the community to serve. I don't know. You could just say something. God's called me to reach the, uh, the, the nationals here in my community. And it seems like all they do is get foreign students who come to their thing. Well, you know what? Maybe you just need to wake up and realize, God, that's where you want my ministry right now, to be among the foreign students. I'm not going to push them away. I'm going to get as many of them as I can. If that's who God brings you, then that's who you should minister to. That's exactly what Paul did with the first European convert. She was an unlikely person. She was out of his target group. But nevertheless, I don't think Paul really had a target group, did he? He might have went to a community with something in mind. But he said, no, Lord, you bring to us this woman. Her heart's opened. Then she's in my target group. I'm going to minister under her. So, yes, I think that Lydia was an unlikely convert. But can I turn it around just for a moment? I think on another aspect, she was a very likely convert. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. I know it's somewhat a contradiction, but, but this is what I mean. Is that when you think about her, here's a woman who's basically a churchgoer, right? She goes to whatever kind of Sabbath service they have there down by the riverside every week. She's a churchgoer. She's a woman of prayer. She's a worshiper. And she was at that place where verse 13 tells us where prayer was customarily made on the Sabbath. And so in some ways, Lydia was a likely person, someone with some religious background, This is what I'm saying is that when you're out there doing a missionary work, when you're trying to reach Europe or wherever God puts you, don't ignore people that you can reach even though they have a religious background. In our question and answer sessions that we had this afternoon, little panel with Dave Sylvester and Phil Metzger and myself, we had a lot of questions asked about reaching Roman Catholic people that you rub shoulders with every day. And listen, I would say, That if you have the opportunity to reach Roman Catholic people, you reach out to them with everything you have. You you don't have to reach out to them by carrying on an anti-Roman Catholic crusade. Don't be anti-Pope, anti-Roman Catholic. You just be pro-Jesus and pro-Bible. You give them the word of God. You give them what's missing from their experience with the Lord. And that's a foundation of truth. And that's a foundation of just a living, active, uh, real life with the Lord. You remind them that membership at a church never saved anybody. Not Roman Catholic, not Presbyterian, not Methodist, dare I say it, not Calvary Chapel. Being a member of a church doesn't save anybody. It's their personal relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ that brings salvation. So listen, this is what you do. And even if somebody is like, well, look, you say they're not far from the kingdom of God, then rejoice and bring them in. God may bring you unlikely converts. He may bring you very likely converts. And I'm fascinated by Lydia because in a way she was a little bit of both, both likely and unlikely. Third thing about Lydia that I point out to you is that Lydia was a hearer of God's word. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says, Paul sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Right? So Paul's there. He's, can you imagine what Paul's like? He's like, all right, I want to speak to the men. And it's just the women's Bible study. All right, well, great. All right, I'm going to speak to the women. And then it says in verse 14 that a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She heard the word of God. Listen, this is something that you should pray for. 
You're out there doing the work of the Lord. You, you want to start a church. You want to support somebody in prayer who's starting church. This is what you pray for. You pray that God would send them hearers of the word. People who sit there and hear the word of God. They'll take it in. They'll receive it. People that God is working on them, opening their ears so that they can receive it. Lydia was a woman who heard the word of God. Yet even without that, even with that, it would have been incomplete without the next aspect. And this is number four. Lydia was a woman with a God-opened heart. What do I mean by that? Look at it there in verse 14. What does it say? The Lord opened her heart. Friends, this is one of the most important things that we need to think about and we need to pray about in our missionary endeavors. We need to think about and pray about the importance of God doing a work in the heart of the sinner. Right? That's where it begins now. If it's a matter of God doing a work in the heart of the sinner, doesn't this instantly elevate the place of prayer in our evangelism? Look, I know it's a glorious thing for you to speak to somebody about God, right? And you want to speak to them. You want to give them the word. And God bless you. Give them the word. Hit them with it again and again. But how effective is it really going to be until God opens their heart? And I want you to ask, are you really on your knees praying? God, give me open hearts. God, open the hearts of the people that I speak to. God, I'm going to teach a Bible study tonight. Would you please open the hearts of the people that hear me? Lord, I'm going out to live my life. I'm going to work today. Would you please open the heart of somebody at work today that I can speak to? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ian Bounds put it like this. He said, listen, it's an important thing to talk to men about God. It's an even more important thing to talk to God about men. And that's really where evangelism begins. Evangelism begins with pleading with God to send out the power of the Holy Spirit so that people have their hearts opened. And here's the glorious thing. When you meet open hearts, you know that you can pour the word of God into them and you know that God is working in them. Sort of like this, you know, just how like a dog can can smell fear on a person. Man, we want to be able to smell it when a heart is being opened before the Lord, right? And we want to take advantage of that with everything that we have and pour into them because we know that God is moving in their hearts. I have to say, I've experienced it before where I'll begin speaking with a person and I sense that their heart is not opened at all. And then I'll sort of find a way to just sort of cut off the conversation and I won't talk to them about the Lord anymore. Maybe I'll talk to them about something else. But I'll just start praying and waiting for a more opportune time when their heart is open. Listen, I think this is important that we just do it and realize how vital it is that people have this work of the Holy Spirit done upon them. Do you understand that this is what the Holy Spirit promised? The Holy Spirit promised that he would be sent by God into the world and that he would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that's what we should pray for. Lord, this is what you promised. You promised to send forth the Holy Spirit to do this 
please do this now in the life of these people. Bring them into a place where they hear the word of God with an open heart. Again, this reminds us of the absolutely essential place of prayer in the work of missions. And how often it gets neglected. You know, and sometimes people wonder, well, what can I do? What can I do to, to support people who are out on the mission field? Well, yes, give your money. Of course you should be generous with your money. You should be more and more generous with your money. But listen, if you're going to be generous with anything, be also generous with your prayers. Because we really believe it, don't we? That if the key to effective evangelism, if the key to Europe's first convert was a heart opened by God, then that key is really brought to bear upon the lock of the heart by prayer. Prayer is what turns the key to the lock of the heart, isn't it? And so we pray, pray, pray. We pray from afar. You pray for the missionaries who are in Europe or other places all over the world. You don't just pray for them, but if you're out doing the work, you pray, pray, pray. Never heard of a work of God suffering because of too much prayer. Have you? That's never really occurred to me. No, no, no. Pray, pray, pray. It's an active demonstration of your dependence upon God and your recognition that he has to open hearts. There's another thing. I guess this is number five. That Lydia was somebody who believed and obeyed. What do I mean by that? I mean by that, that Lydia was genuinely converted. She heard the word of God, her heart was opened, and she believed and obeyed. Look at what it says in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Let me tell you, she was a radical believer. She was genuinely converted. It was so true of her that she heeded the word of God that she brought the message to her household and saw them saved. Did you see that in verse 15? In verse 15, it says that Lydia, once she had received this, once she had been converted, she went right home and spoke to her household and she got them converted. Now that's something powerful, right? That's a, can you just picture that in your mind? She walks back from the riverside where she had that wonderful meeting and she heard the word of God and her heart was open and she was converted. She goes right home and she says, kids, get in the living room. Now, in that day too, a household would not just be the children, not just the parents, it would be extended family and would also be the servants in the family. They were also counted as the household. Servants, you get in the living room, everybody, family meeting, get together. And she shares with them what has just been poured into her heart. And it was so real that she brought them unto salvation. Now that's a radical sign of somebody who's a genuine believer, right? By the way, isn't it glorious to see a new believer on fire to lead other people to Jesus Christ. It's just something glorious. And I tell you, we, we need to pray that God would sometimes give us a touch of that for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, right? Lord, just refresh me with that. I want that all over again. But that's how genuine her conversion was. I'll show you another indication of the genuine nature of her conversion. Verse 15 says that she begged Paul and Silas and Luke, and whoever else was with them, to receive her hospitality. Can't you just imagine this? 
I imagine her bringing Paul and Silas and Luke and whoever else. Maybe there were two or three other guys with them. You, you guys, you come to my house now. She brought them to the house. Hey, everybody, family meeting. Paul's going to tell you what he just told me. And then Paul presents the gospel to him and the household gets saved. And she says, listen, I beg you, you have to receive my hospitality. As a matter of fact, it was so true of her that she demanded of them that they judge the validity of her conversion. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 15. She says this, hey, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then you receive my hospitality. That's pretty bold words from somebody who's just been converted, isn't it? Hey, listen, pastor, you say I'm really saved? Well, if you think I'm really saved, then you come over to my house for dinner tonight. That's basically what she said. Matter of fact, verse 15 says that she made a correlation basically saying that if they denied her invitation, they first had to deny that she was really saved. Come to my house and stay, she said. And it says, and they, she's persuaded us. Now listen, this is a woman who is completely sold out. She's genuinely converted. Now, now I think this is very, very important for us to understand that this is the crying need of missionary service, it's true conversions. And I don't know exactly how to talk about this with you. Not because it's awkward, but it's just kind of hard for me to find the exact words. So I'm just going to throw out some words, and I hope you know what they mean, right? She was really saved. Now, I don't know if you've seen somebody come to Christ or give their life to the Lord, and you just kind of don't know, right? Well, did something happen? Maybe, maybe not. Time will tell. And listen, sometimes those time will tell or maybe, maybe not conversions, sometimes they're totally valid, right? Sometimes they're not. But every once in a while, you see somebody who is so on fire from the get-go, they're like a rocket ship exploding from the earth, and you go, man, that person is really saved. They are thoroughly converted. They are extra, super duper converted. Sometimes you start wondering if they're not going up too fast, right? That they're going to crash. Well, listen, Lydia was this kind of conversion. And we need to pray for those kind of conversions. Now, listen, I'm not trying to say for a moment that every conversion has to be that way. Right? We don't measure a conversion by how much enthusiasm a person has or, or how excited they have or what they feel because conversion is the work of God within a person. It's not the feelings that they display on the outside. So no, I'm not trying to say that. But what I am trying to say is there's something glorious when somebody really is converted this radically, isn't there? We need to pray for that. That's a great and glorious thing and it's especially needed out on the mission field. When you see somebody who is profoundly converted, it's just encouraging. It shows what God can do. But there's the other thing I want to get at in this. Is it shows us something very important about the message that Paul preached. Don't miss this. This radical conversion came as a response to what Paul spoke to them Mentioned first in verse 13, right? Verse 13 says, he went down to the riverside, he spoke to the women's meeting, right? Well, what did Paul speak? Paul spoke a message. He presented a Christianity 
that was more than just an intellectual idea. It called people to do something about their life. In other words, Paul wasn't talking about A, B, and C, and Lydia responded with X, Y, and Z. Paul was talking about X, Y, and Z, and Lydia responded with X, Y, and Z. He was preaching a message of radical conversion, and Lydia was radically converted. Listen, it shows something else, too. It shows that Paul preached a message that was simple enough to understand and to respond to immediately. Right, Lydia, how long did it take her? Did did she need a couple days to figure this out? You know, Paul, you've given us some fascinating things to think about. I need to think this through. No, it was so simple that she could respond to it right then. Let me tell you this. I mean this for those of you who minister right here, right now, and especially for those of you who are out on the mission field, you be careful to guard the simplicity of the message. Don't be seduced by people who accuse you of being anti-intellectual because you don't preach up above everybody's head. You know, there are people who want you to preach theology and theological concepts that are above everybody's head just so that you can do that and you can say that you're a fine intellectual preacher. Listen, you guard the simplicity of the message. Now listen, I'm assuming that you are pro-intellectual and that you're pro-intellectual in the very best way that you work hard to know and understand and master the Bible to the very best of your abilities. If you have that kind of intellect, then don't worry about anybody who calls you anti-intellectual. Oh, you work hard to study your Bible. You study to show yourself approved, a workman of God who needs not be ashamed. And here's the point. You know it so well that you can explain it simply. Isn't that somebody who really knows theology? If you know it well enough, you can present it simply. And sometimes when I hear messages from some of these guys... They're talking in such depth and with such big words and with such complexity that I'm sure it's fascinating to some people. But if Lydia ever heard a message like that, she would have never been converted. You've got to give them something they can be converted on. Something simple enough. You know, in his great little book titled, What is an Evangelical? by Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has this great line in his description of what an evangelical is. It's just one of the things that he mentions, but this is one thing he says. He says, an evangelical is a man who always simplifies everything. And I like that. Also, listen, I'm not telling you not to preach theology. You preach theology, but you preach it because you know it so well that you can make it simple. And if you don't know it well enough, that all you can talk about it is in big words and grand theological abstractions, then you just wait a little longer until you understand it good enough to make it simple for people. But there's something else that this shows us. It shows us that there was something about Paul's teaching that challenged people to conversion. There was some presentation of the gospel unto salvation. In other words... 
Paul didn't go to the riverside there and speak to the women's group about tithing, right? I'm not saying it's bad to speak about tithing. God may very well want you to speak to your church about tithing. But Paul didn't do that on that day. He was trying to see people get converted. So he preached to them a message that had a point of decision for conversion. I got to say, there's lots of people today. There's lots of people on the mission field today who want to avoid the preaching of the gospel. You see, they believe all that stuff from the world, all that stuff from the world that says, don't cram that message down our throats. Now, listen, I know that it's true that the message can be presented in a bad, rude, crude way. It is possible to do that. Let's face it, most of the time it isn't done that way, is it? Very rarely. Most of the time, the people who say, don't cram that message down my throat, those are the people being convicted by the Holy Spirit. I remember hearing a great story, a story about a guy who was at a golf course. And supposedly it's a true story. I won't tell you the names involved except for one notable name in it. But this guy's at the golf course, and he sees a a fella he knows from the country club carrying his golf bag off the golf course, and the man is mad. He's, you know, swearing obscenities. He's cursing under his breath. He walks over to his car. He pops open the trunk. He throws his golf bag in there, and he's just murmuring all the time. And the guy goes, man, what's wrong with this guy? He goes over to his friend. He goes, hey, what's wrong? Tell me about this. He goes, You wouldn't just believe what happened on the golf course. He goes, I played in a foursome with Billy Graham. Apparently it was true. He goes, I played in a foursome with Billy Graham. And that man did nothing but shove his religion down my throat for 18 holes. And the guy was astounded because this guy was a believer. And he goes, I'm shocked. I wouldn't expect that from Billy Graham. I heard he was a very gracious man. I didn't think he was. Please tell me what exactly was it that he said to you that he was cramming religion down your throat for 18 holes? And the guy stopped and he took a breath and he said, well, nothing really. Well, that was the whole thing. Billy Graham hadn't said a thing. Not about preaching the gospel to him. Well, he might have said nice drive or good chip shot or something like that. But the man was just so convicted by the godliness and the presence of Billy Graham that he had felt something had been pressed down upon him. And he just felt, well, I'm going to lash out against Billy Graham and all those people who cram religion down our throats. Listen, I'll say it again. It's possible to present the gospel in a rude or crude or wrong way. But that's very rarely done. No, instead, what we need to do is all the time call people to salvation. All the time. All the time present them the life-changing gospel. Listen, you got to preach a message that somebody can get saved on. How long would it take somebody to go to your church, to go to your ministry, to go to your Bible study, until they heard a message that they might actually get saved on? Listen, I know what the tendency is today. The tendency today is to more and more move away from the gospel. The world is telling us, we don't want to hear it from you guys. Listen, they don't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. and We need to present it. There's all these people out here today. They're taking pride in the fact that they don't share the gospel. We went out there and did a ministry. I've heard people talk like this. 
We did a ministry and we didn't share the gospel with anybody. We just shined our lights. Now look, praise God that you shined your lights and we want to shine our lights, right? We want to do those practical things. We want to hand out the waters. We want to hand out the sandwiches. We want to do the practical work and we want to do more and more of it and not less. But right alongside of it, we want to preach the gospel. Because listen, somebody else might give them a bologna sandwich. Nobody's going to give them the gospel except us. No government agency, no Red Cross, nobody else sharing the gospel is what we have to add. So nobody should take this for a moment to think that I'm saying, don't be concerned with practical good. No, do lots of practical good and do more and more of it. But along with the practical good, clearly present the gospel because that's what the world needs. And so please, friends, don't forget that. This was an essential part of Paul's message. If Paul would have preached an unclear, an uncertain, a complicated, a a soft message there by the riverside and Philippi, nobody would have ever got converted. Instead, there was a radical conversion. It was Europe's first convert, this woman Lydia. You know, as I think about this story in the whole context of the book of Acts, I remember that this conversion of Lydia took place after something very important. You see, if you were to read earlier in the book of Acts, you would see that all of this happened after a closed door of ministry. You see, the Holy Spirit did not permit Paul and his ministry team to preach the word in Asia or in Bithynia. And it wasn't just one closed door. It was two closed doors. But it was only after those two closed doors that God spoke to Paul through a vision in the night where a European man, a Macedonian man, said, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now listen, this means something important for us. It means that we don't despair over closed doors. We receive them as God's guidance just as much as we do over open doors. I know I'm speaking to as many people as you have an interest in missions. I know that some of you have had some painful doors closed in your face. You feel like, man, Lord, I wanted to do that. My heart was there. I was set up and for some reason it just all went to pieces. Lord, why'd you do that? And you're sort of sour against God about that. Or you're sour against another person who you felt slammed that door. Listen, my friends, I want you to realize that this ministry came after two severe doors being slammed shut in Paul's face. And it was absolutely the will of the Lord. If God has closed a door, don't try to kick it open. Don't try to pick the lock. Accept it as the guidance of the Lord and say, Lord, you're going to open up something else. I don't know when. I don't know how, but I trust that you do it. I'm just going to be faithful with what you give me to do right here, right now, and trust that you'll open up the door. That's what Paul did. I don't want anybody who hears this ever again to despair over a closed door in your life. That closed door is God's guidance. Receive it as so and let the Lord guide you along the way to what he has next for you. So Lydia's conversion happened after those closed doors, but it also happened before something very important. Do you know what happens next in the book of Acts after Lydia's conversion? 
Not long after this, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail with their lives in jeopardy. Do you understand this? The first convert in Europe came with a big price to pay. And that price was some way connected with the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Listen, we all want wonderful converts like Lydia, right? We could do a show of hands. Who wants a wonderful convert like Lydia? And everybody raises, yes, yes, I want one. I want two. I want ten. Well, how many of us wonderful converts like the Philippian jailer? How many of us are willing to pay the price that might follow? Listen, here's what it is. This wonderful conversion of Lydia happened after a tough time and before a tough time. That's what missionary life is like. You have moments or seasons of wonderful glory. Lydia gets converted. But yesterday was really tough and tomorrow might be really tough. But praise the Lord, today Lydia got converted. Now look, can you be okay with that? Or, or listen, do you have sort of an immature mentality that demands ice cream every day? And you just say, listen, it's got to be Lydia's conversion every day. No, 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 no. It's not going to happen like that. If you're going to serve God out on that mission field, you get ready for lots of closed doors, lots of Philippian jails. And listen, along the way, God will give you some Lydia-like conversions too. You can count on it. But that's not going to be every day. It's going to be a mixed bag And God's going to use that mixture to make you a better servant of his and to draw you closer to him, which is what he's most interested in. So all of this is very important. But can I tell you what I think is perhaps the most important point about Lydia and her conversion? You see, most importantly, Lydia was a first fruits of millions to follow. Think about all the millions of converts that there were in Europe and from Europe lately. Listen, aren't we the recipients of the heritage of European Christianity? That's where it came to us. Thank you, Lydia. You were the first one. You were the first fruits of many to follow. And that little church that started, you could say that it started right there in Lydia's household. That little church was the first fruits of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of churches to follow in Europe and beyond. Now at that moment, standing there in Lydia's living room, seeing her household profess faith in Jesus Christ, does anybody in this room for a moment think that Paul could understand that at the time? Almost certainly not. Paul couldn't look down the corridors of history and see that Europe would be, for hundreds of years, the geographic center of God's work in the world. Not Jerusalem, not Antioch, not Ephesus, but Europe. Paul could not look down the corridors of time and see Wycliffe and Wesley. He couldn't see Spurgeon and Simmons. He couldn't see Luther and the Lollards. He couldn't see Calvin and William Carey. He couldn't see Whitfield and the Valdenses. He couldn't see uh, Hudson Taylor and William Tyndale. He couldn't see Zwingli and he couldn't see Zinzendorf. 
He couldn't see the centuries where Europe would sustain Christianity and the Bible, as weak as that sustenance was, that they would sustain it after the fall of the Roman Empire. He couldn't see the great waves of revival that would originate in Europe and sweep over Europe and come out of Europe. Paul couldn't see that in Lydia's living room. He couldn't see the centuries where Europe would be the great missionary sending continent of the world, spreading the gospel to the furthest reaches of the planet. Paul couldn't see any of that. That moment in Lydia's living room. But I'll tell you what else he could not see. And I'm sort of grateful that he couldn't see this. He couldn't see the decline. He couldn't see the decline that has brought Europe to the place today where it desperately needs missionaries. Think about it, friends. A hundred, a hundred and fifty years ago, Europe was a missionary sending continent of great might and power. And today it desperately needs it. Paul couldn't see uh, Europe in its strength in Christianity, but neither could he see the decline. And I'm grateful that he couldn't. I don't have any doubt about it. It would probably break Paul's heart. It would break Paul's heart if he could see the empty cathedrals and the vacant church buildings. It would break Paul's heart if he could see the men who draw a salary from the ministry, but they deny God's word. It would break Paul's heart if he could see the churches in Europe that are given over to politically correct foolishness instead of God and his word. It would break his heart to see a culture that now survives on what it inherited from Christianity, but it's denied its heritage, and now it's spending its inheritance on nothing greater than vacation and pleasure. If Paul could see the decline, it would break his heart. So let me conclude with this. All this shows us That Europe needs missionaries today. There are Lydia's waiting to be converted in Europe. There are churches waiting to be planted. Missionaries need to go. They need to be trained. They need to be discipled. They need to be sent. They need to be supported. Every one of us can have some hand in that. I think that's the first great lesson. God has Lydia's still in Europe for us to reach. But here's the other lesson. That decline that has happened in Europe has left another nation as sort of being the leading Christian nation in the world. It's left another nation that is the leading nation to send out missionaries to support missionaries, to extend the work of church planting. It sent out a nation, or it's built up a nation, I should say, that is sort of in the place that Europe was 150 or 200 years ago. Most of you live in that nation. It's called the United States of America. And what I want to tell you is that the same decline that happened in Europe 
can also happen here. Some people would say it's already begun. Well, don't deceive yourself. It can happen here. And that's why we are more committed than ever to staying faithful to Jesus and to his word. And why we pray for an ongoing work of his Holy Spirit. Because that decline that happened in Europe, to whatever extent that it's true here, we want it to stop and we want it to turn around. And we don't want the same thing to happen to us. How does that happen? I'll tell you where you resist, where you resist the decline first. You resist it in your own life. Right? You resist any kind of spiritual decline in your own life. Friends, what is the church in America? If it's not you and you and you and you and all of us together, right? If our lives are in spiritual decline, that contributes to the whole of a spiritual decline. And there will be more and more nations one day sending missionaries to us. Well, I don't want that to happen. I want us to be a great missionary sending nation. Because you can only live off the inheritance for so long. And then it comes time to say, no, Lord, the decline stops. And we go forward with what you have. So let's pray. Let's pray for more and more Lydia's. And let's pray that there be no spiritual decline among us. Father, that is our prayer. Those two points, Lord, I I just really want them to be impressed in my own heart, Lord. I think of the multitude of new Lydia's that you have, Lord. People who are waiting to be profoundly converted. People whose hearts are ready to be opened by you. You're just waiting for the preacher to be sent to them, Lord. So, Father, do it. Continue to bring forth those Lydia's and send forth people among us, Lord, to go and to minister to them. To bring them your life-changing word. But, Father, the other thing. Lord, we know that it's very possible for a nation, for a culture, for a society to decline spiritually. Lord, we see all too much evidence of it being true among us as a whole. Well, Lord, at least as individuals and at least as these congregations, we want to say no more, Lord. We want to stop. We want to arrest the decline and instead advance further and further with you. To be assured, Lord, That the best years of spiritual advance are still in front of us as a people, as a nation, as a society. And we want to pray to you, the God who is great enough to accomplish such a thing. Do it, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.